Welcome to Words Matter with Katie Barlow. Welcome to Words Matter. I'm Katie Barlow. Our goal is to promote objective reality. As a wise man once said, everyone is entitled to their own opinion, not their own facts. Words have power and words have consequences. John Robert Lewis was a politician, statesman, and civil rights leader who served in the United States House of Representatives for Georgia's 5th Congressional District from 1987 until his death in 2020. He was the chairman of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee from 1963 to 1966. Born near Troy, Alabama on February 21st, 1940, he was the third of 10 children of Willie May and Eddie Lewis, his parents sharecroppers in rural Pike County, Alabama. As a child in rural Alabama in the 1940s, young John Lewis was disturbed by the evidence he saw around him of the South's Jim Crow racial segregation laws. He wanted to know why they existed. Even as a small child, he would ask his mother why black children went to separate schools from white children, why black people were forced to use separate bathrooms, separate drinking fountains, and sit in separate sections in public movie theaters. His mother discouraged his curiosity by saying, don't get in the way, don't get into trouble. But as John Lewis often explained later, he went in the other direction. He got in the way. He got into trouble. Good trouble, as he famously called it. Inspired by the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who he first met at the age of 18, John Lewis was already an established civil rights leader by the age of 21. He had been one of the original 13 Freedom Riders in 1961 and led the way in desegregating interstate transportation. At 23, John Lewis became the chairman of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee and was one of the big six leaders of groups who organized the August 1963 March on Washington. He was the youngest person to speak at the Lincoln Memorial on August 28th 1963, on the same stage that Dr. King delivered his iconic I Have a Dream speech. While he held many important leadership roles in the civil rights movement and the fight to end legalized racial segregation in the United States, the cause John Lewis became most associated with was that of voting rights. In 1965, John Lewis organized some of the voter registration efforts during the Selma Voting Rights Campaign and became nationally known for his prominent role in the Selma to Montgomery marches. On March 7, 1965, a day that would later become known as Bloody Sunday, Lewis and fellow activist Hosea Williams led over 600 marchers across the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma, Alabama. At the end of the bridge and the city-county boundary, the marchers were met by Alabama state troopers who ordered them to disperse. When the marchers stopped to pray, the police discharged tear gas and mounted troopers charged the demonstrators, beating them with nightsticks. Lewis's skull was fractured 
but he was aided in escaping across the bridge to Brown Chapel, a church in Selma that served as the movement's headquarters. John Lewis bore scars on his head from that incident for the rest of his life. In March of 2015, on the 50th anniversary of Bloody Sunday, President Barack Obama delivered a speech in Selma, and then John Lewis led the way as President Obama, former President George W. Bush, and 40,000 civil rights movement veterans and supporters marched across that very same bridge. With that, let's listen to the Honorable John Robert Lewis talk about the importance of good trouble. President Spencer, members of the Board of Trustees, distinguished faculty, alumni, parents, family, and friends, and to the class of 2016, I'm honored, delighted to be with you on this very important occasion. Madam President, thank you and the board and this wonderful Bates family for this wonderful honor. Let me just say to each and every one of you receiving a diploma today, congratulations. You look beautiful, you look handsome, you look colorful, and you look smart. <laughs> this is your day. Enjoy it. Take a long, deep breath and take it all in. But tomorrow you must be prepared to roll up your sleeves because the world is waiting for talent men and women to lead it to a better place. I tell you, I feel more than honored. I feel more than lucky, but blessed to be standing here on this campus to speak to you, the graduate, where a man by the name of Benjamin Mays studied here many, many years ago. I got to know Dr. Mays, who was part of my inspiration, who's my friend, my leader. He supported me when I ran for office the very first time. And I heard him speak about Bates College so many times. Some of you know he was president of Morehouse College in Atlanta for 27 years in the heart of my district. I had an opportunity to meet him and greet him. And I agree with Coretta Scott King who spoke about him in her 1971 address. It would be hard, very hard, to find a more impressive individual than Dr. Mays, Benjamin Mays. This man, this beautiful spirit, this beautiful soul, 
the son of slaves, who had known the burden of limitation. But it was Bates College, he said, that gave him the tools he needed to be emancipated and to know his worth as a free man. This is a great power of education. And Dr. Bishop Mays is a shining example. I want to thank Bates College for what you did and continue to do to free and liberate all humankind. He had the ability to inspire young men to greatness and challenge them to be their best. He influenced an entire generation of successful black men and inspired men and women, not just of color. It didn't matter whether they were men of color or women of color, or whether they were white or Latino or Asian American or Native American. He did it. We used to call the students at Mohouse College Dennis Boys. He inspired Martin Luther King Jr. It had been for Dr. Mays. I'm not so sure there would have been a Martin Luther King Jr. He was Dr. King's spiritual father. Now, I must tell you that I didn't grow up in a big city like Lewiston <laughs> or Auburn, Portland, Washington, Boston, Atlanta, or New York. I grew up in rural Alabama, 50 miles from Montgomery. Outside of a little place called Troy. My father was a sharecropper, a tenant farmer. But back in 1944, when I was four years old, and I do remember when I was four. How many of you remember when you were four? <laughs> what happened to the rest of us? My father had saved $300, and a man sold him 110 acres of land. We still own this land today. On this farm, we raise a lot of cotton and corn, peanuts, hogs, cows, and chickens. On the farm, it was my responsibility to care for the chickens, and I fell in love with raising chickens. I know you smart, beautiful, handsome graduates don't know anything about raising chickens. <laughs> I know some of you like to eat chicken, but you don't know anything about raising chickens. Any of you know anything about raising chickens? Well, a hand there, a hand there, a hand there. Why don't we compare notes? <laughs> well, when I was growing up, and a sitting hen was set, had to take the fresh eggs, mark them with a pencil, place them under the setting hen, and wait for three long weeks for the little chicks to hatch. Some of you may be saying, John Lewis, why do you mark those fresh eggs with a pencil before you place them under the setting hen? Well, from time to time, another hen will get on that same nest. And there will be some old fresh eggs. And you have to be able to tell the fresh eggs from the eggs that are already under the setting hen. Do you follow me? No, you don't follow me. It's okay. So when these little chicks were hatched, 
I will fool these seven hens. I will cheat on these seven hens. I will take these little chicks and get them to another hen. I'll put them in a box with a lantern and raise them on their own. Get some more fresh eggs, mark them with a pencil, place them under the setting hand. I kept on cheating on these setting hands and fooling these setting hands. And when I look back, it was not the right thing to do. It was not the moral thing to do. It was not the most loving thing to do. It was not the most nonviolent thing to do. But I was never quite able to save $18.98 to order the most inexpensive incubator or hatcher from the Silver Buck store. Now, as graduates, you don't even know what I'm talking about. You, you never saw the Cicero Buck catalog. Maybe your grandparents or great-grandparents. It's a big book. Heavy book. Thick book. Some people call it the ordering book. Some people call it the wish book. I wish I had this. I wish I had that. So I wanted to be a minister. So I would gather all of our chickens together in the chicken yard. And my brothers and sisters and cousins were lined outside, but around the chicken yard. And I would start speaking of preaching. And when, when I look back on it, some of these chickens would bow their heads. Some of these chickens would shake their heads. They never quite said amen. But I'm convinced that some of those chickens that I preached to in the 40s and the 50s tended to listen to me much better than some of my colleagues listened to me today in the Congress. And some of those chickens were just a little more productive. At least they produced eggs. Well, that's enough of that. When we would visit the little town of Troy, visit Montgomery, visit Tuskegee, I saw those signs that said white men, colored men, white women, colored women, white waiting, colored waiting. I would come home and ask my mother, my father, my grandparents, my great-grandparents, why? Why? Or to go downtown on a Saturday afternoon to the theater to see a movie. All of us little black children had to go upstairs to the balcony and all of the little white children went downstairs to the first floor. And I kept saying, why? My mother would say, that's the way it is, boy. Don't get in the way. Don't get in trouble. But I was inspired to get in the trouble. To get in trouble. I was inspired to get in the way. In 1955, 15 years old in the 10th grade, I heard of Rosa Parks. Heard the words of Martin Luther King Jr. on our radio. The action of Rosa Parks, the words and leadership of Martin Luther King Jr. inspired me to get in the way. I was so inspired that in 1956, 16 years old, with some of my brothers and sisters and cousins, we went down to the public library in the little town of Troy trying to get library cards, attempting to check out some books. And we were told by the librarian that the library was for whites only and not for colors. I never went back to that library until July 5th, 1998, for a book signing of my first book, Walking with the Wind, and hundreds of blacks and white citizens showed up. At the end of the program, End of the book signing, they gave me a library card. It's, it says something about the distance we've come and the progress we've made in laying down the burden of race. 
Some of you as young people may be asking, John Lewis, how do you get involved in the civil rights movement? How did you meet Martin Luther King Jr.? When 1957, 17 years old, graduating from high school, I wrote Dr. King a letter, told him I wanted to attend a little college 10 miles from my home called Troy State College, now known as Troy University. He wrote me back and sent me a round trip Greyhound bus ticket and invited me to come to Montgomery to meet with him. In the meantime, I had been accepted at a little college in Nashville, Tennessee. An uncle of mine who I traveled to Buffalo with gave me a hundred dollar bill in a footlocker. The hundred dollar bill was more money than I ever had. I put everything in that foot locker except those chickens and took a Greyhound bus to Nashville, Tennessee. And after being in Nashville for about three weeks, I told one of my teachers that I'd been in contact with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. This teacher knew Dr. King. They both had studied together at Mohouse College in Atlanta. He informed Dr. King that I was there. Martin Luther King Jr. got back in church and suggested when I was home for spring break to come and see him. So in March of 1958, I'm 18. I boarded a bus. I traveled 50 miles from Troy to Montgomery. And a young lawyer by the name of Fred Gray, never seen, never met a lawyer before. Fred Gray had been a lawyer for Rosa Parks, for Dr. King and the Montgomery movement, and became our lawyer during the Freedom Ride and the march from Selma to Montgomery. Met me at the Greyhound bus station and drove me to the First Baptist Church in downtown Montgomery, passed by the Reverend Ralph Abernathy, a colleague of Dr. King, and ushered me into the office of the church. I saw Martin Luther King Jr. and Reverend Ralph Abernathy standing behind a desk. I didn't know what to say or what to do. And Dr. King said, are you the boy from Troy? Are you John Lewis? And I said, Dr. King, I am John Robert Lewis. I gave my whole name. And he started calling me the boy from Troy. It became my inspiration, my leader. And it was Dr. King that inspired me to stand up, to speak up, and speak out. And I got in the way. I got in trouble, good trouble, necessary trouble. So Lord just said to you as graduates, you must find a way to get in the way and get in good trouble, necessary trouble, to save this little piece of real estate that we call earth for generation yet unborn. That we have a right to know what is in the water we drink. What is in the food we eat? What is in the air we breathe? You have a moral obligation, a mission, and a mandate. When you leave here, to go out and seek justice for all. You can do it. You must do it. When I was much younger, had all of my hair, and a few pounds lighter, I studied the way of peace the way of love, the way of nonviolence. We're sitting in at a lunch counter, sitting down in a restaurant, waiting to be served, black and white college students and some high school students, and people will come up and spit on us. 
put lighted cigarettes out in our hair, down our backs, pour hot water, hot coffee on us. We would get arrested and we would go to jail. We have been sitting in for a while in downtown Nashville. And we heard if we continue to sit in, we would get arrested. So I wanted to look what some young people call sharp, right? Fresh, clean, had very little money. So two or three days before going back on a sit-in, I went to a used men's store and bought a suit with a vest. And how much I pay for the suit? Five dollars. I look clean. I look fresh. If I still had a suit today, I probably could sell it for a lot of money on eBay. But by sitting in, by sitting down, we were standing up. And you must stand up. You have a moral obligation to speak up and speak out. When you see something that is not right, not fair, not just, you move your feet. Help make this little planet. Help make this little piece of real estate available to all the humankind. Can we find a way to humanize our institutions, to humanize our political system, to humanize our planet? The late A. Philip Randolph, who was the dean of black leadership during the 60s, said over and over again, maybe our foremothers and our forefathers all came to this great land in different ships. But we're all in the same boat now. That we must look out for each other and care for each other. Dr. King said we must learn to live together as brothers and sisters. If not, we were parents as fools. It doesn't matter whether we are African American. Whether we are white, Latino, Asian American. A native American. It doesn't matter whether we're straight or gay. We are one people. We are one family. We all live in the same house, the world house. I plead with you to use your education as a tool, as an instrument to set free our little planet. And have to create the beloved community. But we respect the dignity and the worth of every human being. We can do it. During the 60s, yes, I did go to jail a few times. And the first time I got arrested, I felt free. I felt liberated. I felt like I crossed over. During the 60s, I was arrested 40 times. And since I've been in Congress, another five times. The, my last arrest was around trying to get the Speaker of the House 
with eight members of Congress, 200 private citizens, trying to get the Speaker of the House to bring forth a comprehensive immigration reform bill. It's not right. It's not fair. It's not just for hundreds and thousands and millions of people to be living in fear, especially young children in this land. As the Pope said when he spoke to a joint session of the Congress, we all are immigrants. We all come from some other place. You have a role to play. I'm going to tell you a little story and I'll be finished. Because this is your day, it's not mine. When I was growing up outside of Troy, Alabama, 50 miles from Montgomery, on that farm, I had an aunt by the name of Seneva. And my aunt Seneva lived in what we call a shotgun house. I know here in the beautiful state of Maine, here at Bates College, you never seen a shotgun house. You don't even know what I'm talking about. A shotgun house, old house, one way in, one way out. In the nonviolent sense, it's a house where you can bounce a basketball through the front door and it will go straight out the back door. My Aunt Eva lived in a shotgun house. But one Saturday afternoon, a group of my brothers and sisters and cousins were playing in my Aunt Eva's dirt yard. And an unbelievable storm came up. The wind started blowing, the thunder started rolling, the lightning started flashing, and the rain started beating on the tin roof of this old shotgun house. Munt became terrified. She started crying. She thought this old house was going to blow away. She loved this house. She would go out, out into the woods and cut branches from a dogwood tree and make a breast room. And she would sweep to the yard very clean two and three times a week, but especially on a Friday or Saturday because she wanted it to look good on the weekend. The wind continued to blow, the thunder continued to roll, the lightning continued to flash, and the rain continued to beat on the roof of this old shotgun house. And she cried and cried. She got all of us little children together, and when one corner of this old house appeared to be lifting from its foundation, she had us to walk to that side to try to hold the house down with our little bodies. When the other side appeared to be lifting, she had us to walk to that corner. We were little children walking with the wind, but we never, ever left the house. I said to you as graduates, the wind may blow, the thunder may roll, the lightning may flash, and the rain may beat down on our old house. Call it the house of Maine. Call it the house of Bates. Call it the American house. Call it the world house. We all live in the same house. Whatever you do, do your part. Play your role in helping to hold our little trimming house together and be a headlight and not a taillight. Be a pilot light. And not a firecracker. A firecracker just burn and go. Pilot light will continue to serve. Serve humankind. Do your part. I wish you well. With peace. 
happiness, and one love. Congratulations. Thank you for listening to Words Matter. Please rate and review Words Matter at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows.